Attention, please. Places for top of show. Places for top of show. Hello, and welcome to Twins Talk Theater. We are Cindy and Stacy, and we're talking about theater, backstage life, and all the excitement that the audience doesn't get to see. Enjoy the show. Hi, everyone. This episode is brought to you by our current partnership with the Grave Theater Festival. It opened on August 9th and runs for two and a half weeks. So stay tuned to hear more about the festival. Thanks. The brand new Rave Theater Festival is heating up the New York City theater scene this summer from August 9th to 25th, featuring 20 diverse new shows that will make you laugh, cry, take you back in time, and across the globe. From ferociously funny farces to timely historical dramas, tap dancing girls to immersive experiences, theater for young audiences to international productions from Australia, Ireland, and South Africa. Experience the festival and get tickets at ravetheaterfestival.com. That's ravetheaterfestival.com. Welcome to this week's podcast. Today we have Harold Hodge Jr., who is the executive director of the Rose Grew Here Productions, where he is also a director and playwright. Based in New York City, he uses his unique multicultural lens to explore the stories of marginalized voices with a particular interest in the stories of people of color. His current project, and why we have him on the podcast, is Fancy Maids, which opens tonight, Friday, August 9th, and plays through August 24th at the Rave Theater Festival. He's both a playwright and the director for this piece. So welcome to our podcast, Harold. Hello, thank you for having me. Can you start out with how did you get into theater and how did you become a playwright and a director? Because I don't think I know many people that do both of those things. Yeah, I don't think I've met anyone who does both. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. So it, it started pretty young for me. I caught the theater bug pretty young. Um, I've always been interested in telling stories in um, any way, shape, or form. Um, when I was younger, I was one of those kids that like commanded everyone sit in the living room so I could everyone could watch my living room dramas that I <laughs> put on myself. I love how <laughs> many people started out that way. That is so awesome. It's just yeah, a natural thing, I think. It's funny because, yeah, I talk to so many people who had that same experience. So it's great <laughs> to know that I wasn't like a deranged child that would command <laughs> that everyone would watch my living room dramas. But that's really how I got started, too. Um, and then eventually there was a production going around. Um, or I, I guess I should also throw out there that I did grow up overseas. Um, so there was this touring production, an American production going on where we were living at the time um, in Japan for this show. And they were looking for children. Um, it was an adaptation of, I don't know if you're familiar with um, The Best Christmas Pageant Ever, which is the story that, about these like um, hoodlum kids that basically go to sign up for a Christmas pageant because they heard there's free snacks and they end up taking over X, Y, and Z. <laughs> so, they, so they needed nice. kids for that. And so my parents were like, well, if you're doing this in the living room, you can do this here. And I actually, it's funnily enough, I wasn't old enough. Um, so we kind of snuck in and say, <laughs> I was actually four, but the youngest age they wanted was six but they actually rewrote one of the characters to be younger so that way I could be in it so (laughs) yeah so it was pretty cool so my first like experience in theater was that touring production so it was like kind of wild for me being like a four-year-old to be doing this experience being in a rehearsal process and just um it kind of like got me started really young and got me really interested in theater itself because I had liked storytelling in all different forms like I like to write and like do comic books but then at that age I knew that theater was really what I wanted to do because I really enjoyed just the, you know, the experience of it 
small, having all those people in a room together for this one time, doing this one thing. Even at that age, I thought that was a really cool thing. So it became like a no-brainer to like pursue theater. That's amazing. And at the age of four, I think Cindy and I were still just running around the yard. (laughs) Pretty much. So did you, well, at the time that you were acting, when did you start doing more playwriting? Um, So honestly, I feel like writing was always my first inclination. And I think that um, being so young, there were just more opportunities for me acting wise. Right. Um, But so I just like I said, being in like the living room drama, (laughs) those are always something I would like. I preferred the storytelling aspect of it. Um, And then in third grade, I, (laughs) I wrote this script that I went to the teacher and demanded that my third grade class would put on for the school. And so once we, (laughs) once we did that, I think it became, my parents were like, okay, so you want to write. And so they really like help, um, they really helped booster that um, desire of mine. So they let me, because you know, um, that was back in the day when we would have like the in-house computer, we all didn't have laptops, we had the big giant dinosaur computers yeah and all that yeah so at that point too and having so much siblings there was always like a fight to get on the computer but because they knew I wanted to use it for that they did allow me to start like using it and typing pretty early on and so um starting third grade is when I really started like cranking plays out I'd write them for like us to do at school I'd write them for like um friends and family to do so once I knew that that was, like, an actual career option, I knew that was something that people, like, actually did around, like, 13, 14, I knew that's what I wanted to do. Yeah, I was just going to wow. ask, when did you, how did you find that out that that was a career option? Because, I mean, I don't even think I knew about that until college, that you could, you know, make a living writing shows. Honestly, yeah, neither did I. I kind of, for some reason, always just assumed they, these plays just kind of existed. Yeah, exactly. that's what I was just thinking. I was like, I don't know, we did shows, but I never thought about somebody actually writing them. No, honestly, though, I just thought they were just kind of there in some, like, archaic file that just got passed along. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And then when I was 13 or 14, um, at this point, I had written a few, like, skits and plays that were done at school. And um, I was allowed to do, um, that was when I was going into high school, and they let me write um, the production for um, uh, the freshman class. And that's when they, um, my theater teacher at the time was telling me, like, you know, you should really do this. This is something you could pursue. And, like, at the time, I really thought, like, doing theater just really entailed, like, actors. I feel like as a child, mm-hmm. that's all I really thought <laughs> existed. Mm-hmm. Um, but once I got, I had that theater teacher tell me, no, this is something you should pursue. You should pursue writing. And I guess also too, at that age, I thought a writer meant like novels. I thought that was what a writer was. They wrote books. I didn't realize that that's something I could be a writer that writes for theater. But once she kind of um, pointed out that that's something I had a skill at and she really um, encouraged me to do that it really opened up the doors for me there and I started and she also was really helpful because she started giving me like plays of like new works because at the time I only knew like you know the classic people like Shakespeare and whatnot but then she really started like pointing me in the direction of like different playwrights and so it was it really opened the doors for me and opened my eyes to what I wanted to do. That's so wonderful that they let you write for your school and perform it then and there. I don't think I've ever heard of any anybody else doing I couldn't even imagine going to like our high school professor and being like hey we wrote this he'd be like yeah no we're already doing something else yeah this is already scheduled <laughs> I write already that is true let is a strong word I was very <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, very persuasive in your 
demands. Yes. I, well, because there was a theater program at the time, but uh, my freshman year, the theater was being renovated, so they were on hiatus. And I was like, well, that's not going to fly. So I went <laughs> to, um, there was a volunteer organization called Voice, and they um, their whole thing was about, like, doing things for the community. So I went through them, and I was like, I can, we, I have the show that I can write that we can do, and we can, instead of charging tickets, we could take donations um, of toys for the local children's hospice. And so that's how I was able to swing that and that's how we began doing our annual donation shows oh that's wonderful what did you write about for that show um let's see the first one freshman year that one was around the holidays so it was that would have been the christmas effect which was a story basically um following these four high school kids who are under the stress of like uh, applying for college or whatnot and their very high school problems but then you know the spirit of the holidays comes through to bring them all together So it was a very holiday family show my freshman year. I think it's so cool that even at a young age, people were letting you produce your stuff that you wrote, and you've just continued doing that. Like, everybody around you seemed to be very encouraging of this, which is... Yeah, I have to say that that is definitely why I am where I am now, because so many people encouraged me, um, because I could have so easily have been told no, and I can't even imagine where I'd be had I not had all these opportunities that people allowed me to like um create especially as like a playwright too I just feel like I wouldn't be where I am as far as knowing my voice and what I want to write about if I didn't have so many opportunities to write and to play and to try and fail at such a young age so did you always yeah did you always uh because you're a show right now the fancy maids uh, the fancy maids it's it has a deeper meaning and all that. Did you know that that's where you wanted to go with writing or did that come later and you started with whatever fun things jumped into your head at the age of 14? Yes, it was definitely at the time it was like fun things that jumped in my head. And then, but at the time um, when I was either 14 or 15 was the time um, the Trayvon Martin incident happened. And that's when I also just became very active and very, um, politically aware and I guess the two always were two different separate lanes for me it didn't really click that the two worlds could meet until I was older until I was like 17 or 18. Was that because of college because of classes or just somehow clicked in your head? Um, a combination of both. My senior year before I went to college, um, I wrote a show that wasn't political per se but it was very um it was very based off of like what something me and my senior class was going through, just this whole idea of like graduating, setting off in the world and going off. And I feel like that was the first time I didn't just write something that I wanted to for fun, but it was very like, um, I'm going to write about this experience and I'm going to like really tap into these feelings and like um, in this metaphorical way. And I feel that that's when it really clicked to me that, okay, I can discuss how I feel about mm-hmm. certain things in these shows. And I think that's when that really clicked for me. Tell us more about Fancy Maids, which is, we'll, we'll release this podcast on the day that it opens, which is pretty exciting. Ooh, that is exciting. <laughs> um, so Fancy Maids um, is set in 1853, um, and it follows four women who have escaped American slavery in the South, and they're now in a Northern freed state. 
Um, because of the Fugitive Slave Act, they are having problems finding work, so they have found themselves in a brothel to make money to move further north, and they find themselves tempted by acts of vengeance and uh, rage and from their past trauma. And yeah, it's really a discussion on how we move forward, how we heal, how does one reclaim their body as their own. And yes, that's fascinates. <laughs> Did you have to do a lot of research for this? About... About yes. slavery, about the act that you just talked about, about to try to make it as accurate as possible, or is it more of just the personal journey these women are going through? Um, yes to both. <laughs> so I had actually done a lot of research beforehand, um, as before I even decided to write it. As I mentioned, I um, I grew up overseas, so I didn't really grow up in America. Um, I grew, spent most of my life in Japan, and um, I just always kind of had this desire to, like, educate myself on like my heritage if that makes sense because I was yeah. so far away and also because I'd often be the only black person in spaces I just always felt this need and that was also my parents would also highlight <laughs> they would always be like you need to stick um aware that just because we're over here and your experience is one thing that that's not the experience in America and <laughs> it's not the same so they always try to make sure I was aware of what I came where I came from so I've always been drawn to slave narratives and always was reading them um so but once I got into fa once I decided to write fancy maids I just made sure I shifted my focus into the narratives of um slave women and their experiences and I actually didn't know about the um about what the fancy maid was until I was writing the show. And then I stumbled upon that in my research. And that helped me narrow in the subject matter of the play. Oh, that came so many questions just came up with that. What were you taught? Were you taught about American history over in Japan or were you taught about Japanese history? Like were you taught on base? So it was a lot of American students that you were with? Yes, I was on base, so I had a lot of American students. Um, I only went to school off base for one year, but um, so most of my education was done with um, Americans. So we got, we did get our education, but um, as much as uh, everything, we were taught that slavery happened, but we never really um, went into depth, if that makes sense. Like we never right. really. No, it totally yeah. makes sense. Yeah. There's a lot of schools, actually, even in the States that do that. Like, oh, yeah, this was a thing, but we'll just pretend it didn't happen. It didn't happen, yeah. Um, I don't really think that the, the like, level of cruelty was ever made clear to us. Um, mm -hmm. We were told, you know, it was wrong that these people were made to do work. Um, and also, too, I kind of remember being taught slavery and, like, in, like, it being lumped in with the whole, like, less about indentured servitude and all of that just being, like, kind of talked about in a day. Um, mm. and if it ever came wow. up again, it would be during, like, Black History Month, and they'd be like, let's talk about Harriet Tubman because it's February. But apart from that, that's really all we really got. So you had to do a lot of your own research for this? Yes. Um, yeah, it was a lot of research and a lot of... Um, and like I said, it was mostly... Um, for Fancy Maids in particular, it was mostly reading about um, the experience of slave women, because that's something, too, I feel like is never really brought to the forefront because it was so bad. Um, yeah. Like, most people don't know what a Fancy Maid is. I didn't even know what it is. And no one, when we, everyone who, like, started working on the show in the beginning, all the actresses, they didn't either. It's something that was kind of swept under the rug um, because it was so bad. Is Fancy Maids that they became brothel workers? Because, yeah, I've never heard of that term before. So Fancy Maids is actually, um, so Fancy Maids isn't what they are when they're in the brothel. Fancy Maids is what, um, the reason it's the title of the show is because of what they are before they leave the South. 
So fancy maids were women, black women who were sold for the act of sex. That's why they were sold. So it was uh, basically a slave trade within the American slave trade. And I didn't know that. Um, I like I was aware through reading slave narratives that um, sexual assault was so bad because your body was owned by someone else. And so they were, were in the situation. But I didn't know that there was just such a brazen, it was like a upfront business about it. Like they would have these auctions called fancy trades and they would sell these women for that reason because they were deemed pretty or because they um, Mm -hmm. looked appealing and they were sold for this. And I had no idea that that was such a a popular thing and how often it happened and how much it was spoken about because... Right, how uh, in the open it was. It wasn't even like they were trying to hide it. It was just... At there. all. Yeah, no, it was just there. And I was always under the impression that, because I knew sexual assault was so, um, like, present during the slave trade, but I always thought it was something that was, like, hush-hush, like, that they didn't yeah. talk about. But it wasn't at all. It was expected, and um, it was just there. And also this whole idea that, in my research about the Black Jezebel, which was this idea that was put forward at the time to justify it, that, be- that African-American women were naturally um, promiscuous, and that they were, like, built differently, and that they were... Um, I read a passage where a white man published at the time basically saying that a black woman couldn't be raped because they would always want sexual activity so that's (laughs) but how did they come up with that stuff like i know it's honestly terrible i think i also read too that it was linked because um during the victorian area of course like the way the modesty and dress there versus the dress in africa because of the heat when they came to africa and saw that people were walking around um um, oh, interesting. Because of the heat, they use that to make that leap to be like, ah, see, these people are like savage and very sexually active and sexual promiscuous. And so they use that to kind of lump in this idea of the Black Jezebel, um, which is something that um, sadly enough has just been so pumped into the roots of America and American society that yeah. like, that idea just kind of lasted for such a long time, even up until I'd say even up until like modern day with some of the modern media we see now. It's it's definitely, um, it's definitely there, which is something that's just really sad that the roots of slavery are just so present and they're just so deep in this country, which is definitely one of the reasons that I was inspired to write the show in the first place. That's amazing. How has it been working with these women on the show? I can imagine it being rather difficult at times for them, number one, like doing the research themselves and learning about it, but then putting themselves mm-hmm. in, these, in these roles inside the rehearsal process. Has it been? I'm honestly, I'm honestly so thankful that all of us just we genuinely like each other and love each other so much, and it is just such like a little family because we've been working on the show and so long that we are really there for each other and we're able to like help each other through this process because in the beginning it was definitely the hardest because um so being an african-american man writing this experience i wanted to make sure that a woman's voice was present through the process so we was workshopping mm-hmm. it before um before anything was set in stone as soon as i wrote the, literally the day after i wrote the first draft i had these four women come into the rehearsal room and read it and got feedback on how they felt as women and what they thought worked what didn't work so they've been involved in the process for so long and that that we've been able to grow together with this that it is um thankfully we're able to really just take care of each other and stepping into this era and there are some days where we do need to like take a break and just kind of Mm. shake it off and talk about 
about something else. Especially, yeah. um, there were days earlier on when we would bring in research. We'd all bring in slave narratives that we found that stuck out to us that were, um, that tied into the story. And we would just read these real firsthand accounts. And so those were definitely the heaviest rehearsals to read these stories that actually happened and know that these women were real and they had to go through this. So that was definitely some of the harder things to do in rehearsal. That I can't imagine. I mean, I can't imagine because I've done shows similar, but that's, you're right. One of the more difficult and you're like, and now let's go into rehearsal. And everybody was like, no, we need some time to cry for a few minutes. Mm -hmm. How has your story evolved? You kind of mentioned it a little bit, but how has this play evolved from the first draft once you got those women in the room and started working through it up until where you guys are now, which is opening tonight? Yes, it really just evolved into um, this, it really evolved into more of a story about how do we heal from such trauma and what the ramifications are and just the different viewpoints. Because one of the things that's very interesting about the show is just that all four women are so different and they have so different voices and perspectives on their trauma, which I think wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for um, the workshops and being able to grow this piece. And I think that's definitely one of the most interesting things about the play because even, I don't think any four people will leave the play feeling the same way because these four women are so different with such strong convictions that are completely different. Mm -hmm. So the piece doesn't just have the four women, right? You have a few male characters in there as well as two white men? Yes, white three men? white men. There's three. three white men. How is it to have them in the room with it? Do you guys, I mean, that's just got to be a completely different atmosphere. Do you have rehearsals with just the four women and then rehearsals all together? Or is everybody on stage pretty yes. much the whole time. Um, well, like I said, the four women were brought into the process very, very, very early before the rest was even casted because before I even, um, because when it started off as an idea, I just wanted to make sure and check in with them and say, is this story something that should be told? How do you feel as Black women about this piece? So it was really a lot of time spent with them first. Mm -hmm. um, and then after a few um, rehearsals with them of workshopping the piece and me taking things in, taking it back, rewriting it, then once we were like, okay, now there's a show, then the casting process came. So it was very interesting bringing them into this process that had been going going on for a while, especially yeah. because it's so racially charged and genderly charged to also not to have that divide already in the text, but then they're also coming in. And so it also just kind of brought this um, different air into the atmosphere. So it was very, it was very interesting, but we, like I said, we all love each other so much. And it was just very, I was very fortunate to have a cast that get along well, that we were able to, after that first rehearsal, once they came in and be like, well, rehearsal's done, but let's all go hang out. <laughs> so it was kind of, it was kind of good that that was the atmosphere. And it was very easy. So it's very easy for us to shake it off no matter what the white actors have to do or say in this play because right after we're like, okay, now let's all <laughs> let's all go do something else and step out of these characters and kind of leave this in the past. And the, I will say too that the um the men actors are also just very respectful and very um considerate about the material and about the feelings of everyone else on the process. I would love to get their perspective as well because probably for one of the first times in their life, they came in as the outsiders which is uncommon mm -hmm. as white men, you know, like they came into a group that was already together and with a story that made them the antagonist more or less, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I also feel like too, that um, the show is very different. Just piggybacking off what you said in the sense of 
just the content of the show, it's very... Because normally when you hear, like, a slave narrative or a plantation play, you think of this... I You get a very clear sense of what you're going to get. But I really... It was really important to me to give these women agency and to give them power that they might not have necessarily had in um, Antebellum South, which is why I said it in the mm-hmm. And so it is very different because not only are these white characters here, but they don't have as much power as they normally have in this setting. So it also... It's mm-hmm. also very it's a very different dynamic but we definitely enjoy it and i think that's what makes fancy maids stand out and i don't want to give anything away but there's definitely a huge power shift at one point as well that's so awesome i'm really hoping hoping to make it i can't make it to opening but i think the following weekend or the weekend after i could be back up in new york city so i'm i'm looking forward to it even more now because of what we're talking about no, damn being in California, I can't go see anything in New York at Spur of the Moment. <laughs> Flights are expensive. We'll be with us in spirit. Yeah, yeah I'll wait good. for you to come out to California and come see that show. <laughs> <laughs> so how has it been transitioning from playwright to director on this piece? Yes. Um, it very... So... It always is a very interesting thing to shift for, to directing something that you've written because there's always this there's always this concern that okay let me make sure that something that I thought I put on this page is not being imposed. If that makes I was sense. just going to say very- that you already have all the research in your head, so you might mm-hmm. direct completely different it's very easy to like have something in mind or to like hear something being said a certain way even something as small as that or it's something very big as far as like a backstory that isn't said because of course writing you have to come up with all that stuff yeah it's very important to me as um the director to as soon as i come in to really just step back and really give the actors a lot of room um and also to just that relationship because um from the first week of rehearsals i had to really set down that um I was the direct and putting on my director's hat because as the playwright having the playwright in the room, the actors were very much lean into being like, so they would just ask things, if that makes sense. They'd be like, so what do you, what, so what does this actually story? mean? Or what yeah. does this mean? Yeah. And so it was always time to go, I don't know. Don't ask me. I don't know the answer. <laughs> um, uh, even simple questions, like there's one character whose age is never specified and she was like, how old am I? And I was like, you tell me, how old are you? How old is this character? Just making sure that I took the playwright hat off when I went into the rehearsal room and only put it on if I needed to because of course there would be things we discover um, sometimes through improvisation that I know let's bring that into the play so I would then put the playwriting hat back on and be like let's restructure this but it was very um so that was the biggest challenge from the beginning it's just making sure that the actors have the same freedom they would in any other process where the playwright isn't <laughs> isn't present and in the room. Is there a lot that they found that you found very interesting and different from the original story that you had in your head? Oh, definitely. I feel like that's one of the main reasons why I want to make sure I do that, because I feel like the play has grown so much because of it. There were things that, um, especially when it comes to, like, just table work, there are things that, I I mean, that's what actors do. They're just so good at that. Yeah. Small things in the script. There'll be sentences that I didn't think could have the weight that they do, and they're just so good at finding the intricacies. And so, yeah, the actors have definitely brought so much more to the story that I didn't initially put there, but now it is... (laughs) definitely a part of the story and it's worked its way in and I think that's the greatest thing about working on like a new piece in general is that there's just so much room for things to grow and evolve and change um and yeah so it's been it's definitely different from what I originally intended so how does that translate 
to tech for you, did you also come up with the design, the scenic design, the costume design? Did you bring in designers to help you with that? We did have designers. Um, we had a wonderful lighting designer, which we just did our first day of tech yesterday. And everything <laughs> was gorgeous. <laughs> so, um, but yes, I did bring in designers as well. And how was their interpretation of your show compared to what you had in your head visually? Uh, a very, I will say it's very, because also too, I feel like this play has just been through so many drafts and that the look always changes. So it was very different from what I had in mind. But again, I feel like it's always better that way, if you ask me. I feel like it's that's the greatest thing about theater is that it's a collaborative process and other people bringing ideas that just open things up in a way that the one person wouldn't have done. Yeah, that's so cool. What is your tech process like at this festival? Ooh, because yeah, there's so like it's... 30 shows or something happening in like two or three locations all in a matter of two weeks. And so Stacey and I are both very curious about the in and out and the logistics yes. of it. Yeah. How do you get lights programmed and focused and then changed again? Yes, it was definitely a process. <laughs> so we have, so yes, there are 20 shows. And so the first, so we basically have like a day to get all our programming and queuing and everything done, solidified, solidified, and set. So it was very much like we come in, we come out. There's no, <laughs> there's no time to like lollygag. We had a very set agenda. Um, but luckily, um, it was with the, the venue has a staff there as well that, um, is familiar with like the lighting system that was there to like help. And so, and luckily my lighting designer too, knowing what the process would be, had everything programmed and ready when we got in there. So it was a very in and out process that I'm very glad that my team was very adept to working with because, um, it's very swift compared to what an average show's tech process would be that's amazing and then when you actually perform it's the same thing you load in perform load out and within the same day yes and in a very short amount of (laughs) short amount of time so um it's actually funny that part of our rehearsal process in tech we had to set aside time to just rehearse moving in and moving out with everybody because oh interesting structure Mm -hmm. so yes it was a very um interesting process but I think it's good. It keeps us on our toes. <laughs> <laughs> That's, yeah, That's keep it concise. So how did you get... Uh, did you submit your play to the festival and wait to hear a reply? Or how did getting your work into the festival... How did that whole process work? Um, yeah, so I had... It was... I submitted the script, which is actually... <laughs> it's really funny how things work out because things in theater can just really happen so quickly. I um, I wasn't going out of town on vacation. I was going on a cruise, and my friend texted me being like, oh, did you hear about this festival? And um, it's being, um, Ken Davenport is the artistic director, and I was like, oh, so that definitely caught my attention right off the bat. But mm-hmm. the submission date was that day, and I was literally about to like walk onto this boat. <laughs> <laughs> 
So I was just like, well, all right, let me. And I literally was, I was a family vacation. I was like, wait, before we, we were literally in the car. <laughs> I was like, before we get out the car and get on the boat, can you turn back on the hot spot so I can submit the script? Because I had been working on Fancy Mates for a while at this point. We had already done a workshop production. So just like that, I just sent it and then got on the boat. And because it was on vacation, I wasn't really thinking about it anymore. So I was able to just kind of take my mind off of it. And then um, the turnaround process was really kind of fast. I got back from the cruise and like, at the end of that week, I found out that I was, like, a finalist. And so then it was, like, really exciting because it was just this thing that kind of just fell into my lap that I kind of submitted to off the cuff that I'm like, oh, wow, now this actually might be happening. And so, yeah, and before I know it, I found out I was going to be a part of the festival. That's amazing. I love when things happen like that. You're like, don't have time to worry. Don't have time to, like, Honestly, that's the rewrite it ten happen. times. You're just like, and Because that's exactly what I would have done to have yep. been more time. Yeah. I would have been like, all right, net me. Especially to just knowing that, like, who was on the, like, creative team for this. I would have been like, all right, let me make sure that every element of this is perfect. So I'm going to rewrite it until the deadline comes. And so it was nice to be able to just kind of send what I had, which also, too, was just a nice affirmation that, like, what we had so far far was working you know to know that like I didn't have time to like polish or change anything what we did in the last workshop is what I sent to the festival and that's what got us in that's amazing congrats yeah how many of your works have been produced outside of your own theater company or is this the first one being produced at a festival um, I've had two shows of mine outside of my theater company produced, but this is the first time I'm being involved in a festival. Nice. That's pretty cool. How many, I mean, it's kind of a vague question because you've been writing for so long since you were so <laughs> young. How many like fully written shows do you have that people could produce, say if a another theater wanted to do one of your works? Um, I'd say I'm up to, including Fantasy Maids, it'd be nine. How do people get a hold of that? Like, they come see Fancy Maids, they love it. Now, how do they get a hold of you? To get a hold of me? Um, or to whoever... The Rose Grew Here's website. Okay. The Rose Grew Here website? Great. So we'll... Us. We can put that... Definitely going to mark that down so everybody can find it. Yes, please do. I would love to hear <laughs> from people after Fancy Maids. And it's also, too, it's one of those shows that um, all of us are just so passionate about sharing it that we... That's um, because the subject matter is just so important to us and because we do feel this humbling experience that we really are, um, we really just are really passionate about keep getting to share and to keep getting to do it and to keep getting to share it with more people. So that's why we're really excited to the festival and anything that may come afterwards. Yeah, hopefully a lot of things come afterwards. (laughs) That'd be great. I hope hope so too. Uh, You are also at a university. You at a university right now or grad school? Um, I just graduated from Pace's School of Performing Arts. Nice. When did you come back to America after being abroad for so long? I came back when I was 14 years old. Was it a very different culture? I mean, obviously Japan's very different oh, from yeah. America. How did you feel? <laughs> did When did you leave America and go to Japan? I went to America when I, I mean, I went to Japan when I was three. Yeah, so you probably don't remember America. 
Not at all. So moving back to America is actually pretty daunting for me because I just felt, I was more, I was just so worried because I was like, I don't know if I'm going to fit in. Because, you know, you, when you're a teenager, that's really all you care about, like fitting in and like yeah. knowing what right. Well, that's a hard time for anybody. And then to go all the way across the world into a different, so a different country. Exactly. Yeah. And then I was just kind of like, I didn't realize how much stuff I didn't know about till I got here. And I was like, wow, I'm really, <laughs> I'm really out of the loop. So it was, it was definitely, um, strange experience as far as like the culture and then also too though one thing that was very jarring for me but probably in the best way possible was like I said growing up um, overseas I was often the only person of color in a lot of spaces and then for that to change and for me to all of a sudden have like community in that sense that was definitely a culture shock as well yeah where did you move to when you came back I moved to Virginia so I went from being one of the only people of color to moving to a school where it was a majority of people of color. So that was a, definitely um, a difference, but a good difference. A good difference. Yeah. That's so wonderful. Did it, did it affect your identity because now you were no longer the one and only and now oh, you fit in or oh did goodness. that mess with you? It was something that I was just so, I, it's actually kind of sad. I was, I just wasn't aware of how many things I did or way I thought was just wrapped around that element. Like there's so many things that even to this day that I have like things that I adopted into my personality because I was the only person of color in the space. And you really just don't even realize it for a while. And then once I came back to America, um, and I started shifting out of it, I really started to realize that I was, there were things that I would do to like not stand out and not um, further any stereotypes. That was one of the biggest things. Um, Because my parents were also very like, they would always point that out too. They're like, don't do X, Y, and Z because then people will believe A, B, and C. And so it was definitely a culture shock to come into a place where I wasn't the only one. But then after high school, going to um, college where I then shifted back into being one of the few people of color, then it just Mm -hmm. became so clear to me the difference because then I started picking up some of my old habits and then I was like, oh, I, I now see what I'm doing. I didn't know what the term code switching was either until I got to college. And then I was like, oh, I see. I see what I'm doing now. So when did you start the production company, The Rose Grew Here? I was one of the only people of color um, in my program. Well, in my specific program, I am the only only non-white person in my program and in my year. And so there just weren't as many opportunities. And then there was student theater as well. But um, when I submitted one of my first plays, it was um, really, it was focusing on um, race relations. Um, I was submitting it to an all-white creative team. And Mm. um, and just kind of talking to them in the interview about it. There are things like the play dealt with like lynch, uh, the lynching era in America and they were just so unaware of it. And it was just kind of this like feeling that I had to like, it was just like a weird vibe. So I, at that point was, like, I really want to just create a space to where all different minorities, like whether they be uh, personal color, LGBT, um, women can just really kind of come create um, and tell those stories. And not only is it fo- not only was the production company focused on um, playwrights of minorities, but telling the stories of minorities as well, and telling stories that we wouldn't necessarily have been told before. That's. I feel like I am of this generation, but at the same time, I just feel like our education must have been better than so many people. Because I was like, "How do you not know about lynchings? 
Like how know, true. It's so amazing to me the lack of education that exists that people in have. This system. Well, because it's just one of those things where I feel like it's just. I feel like people don't want to recognize how things like that because then you have to really recognize the flaws us in this country, and That's then true. when you recognize those flaws, you then you also have to recognize that some of them are still here. And I feel like that's <laughs> a right. lot of them are still here. It. Yeah. Yes. That's- to just be like, oh, the civil rights movement was in the 60s and everything was better and we all lived happily ever after is a narrative that I find that we get a lot in school systems because it's just easier to not have to um, really talk about like the problems that we are still facing. Yeah. So how many shows, or actually, what year did you start The Rose Crew here? That would have been 2015. 2015. And how many productions have you done since you started the company? Um, in total, we've done eleven, um, but three wow. of them, three of them were um, revamps of the same shows. Um, one of the shows went on a tour, and so um, yeah, so that counts that as well. That's still very impressive to do eleven in that short amount of time. Yeah, while still going to school and all. Group of performers. Um. It's kind of, as time goes on, it kind of evolved into that because, again, because um, all the stories were, like, focusing on, like, minorities and because, again, I went to a school where there weren't many minorities, it did kind of evolve into that because we the pool of people of color or the pool, the pool of LGBT were, like, the same people. So it did start to evolve into that mm-hmm. until... Um, until we really started um, opening it up to not just being a school activity. Because at first it really started off as like a pace thing. Um, But then as we started getting older and like doing shows off campus and like touring shows like off up and down the East Coast, then we started bringing in other actors and outside actors and auditioning people. So then it kind of opened up into something else. Yeah, I did notice your staff, which I... I sent the the page to my sister because I was like, look, they're all amazing. Uh, they're almost all Pace students as well. So I was wondering if that's how it got started. Yes, it did. It got started at Pace. We re- it really just started with the conversation at a sushi restaurant one day. And, <laughs> and then we decided <laughs> to just do it. Just to do something about it because it needed to happen. Mm-hmm. What are yeah. your goals for the future for the company? I would really love to, um, after doing the tour, that was just something that was really... <laughs> which is really special to all of us. And that's something I definitely see us doing more of because we, it was just very, it's one of those moments where you're like, ah, yes, this is why I do theater. Because we got to take that show to places where they just didn't have any experience with theater. We got to go into certain schools, certain lower income schools as well. And we got to just be around these people who had never seen a play before. And so mm-hmm. that was just a really like touching experience to have all these people coming up to us afterwards and being like, wow, I saw a play and now I want to do theater and now yes. I want to act. And so that was something that was really special to all of us involved on that. So I definitely see us doing more tour productions taking shows into um taking shows into lower income areas um so that's definitely one of the biggest things i see happening for us in the future again how do you support that with grants um yeah so we have um we a mixture of things with grants and then also too it was just (laughs) really being like smart with the money as in the sense of like okay, this is how much we earn from this, from this first show. Let us now from this create a budget to where we can um, sustain. And also too, it also helped that um, one of my 
uh, gigs. One of my um, side jobs when I was in college was I was a reviewer for um, grants. And so, <laughs> oh, that's amazing. useful. Yes, I was just seeing how, not only seeing how people applied for grants, but one of the things was that I had to um, analyze people's budgets. So that was something I definitely am really grateful I had that experience because um, it just helped me really able to like balance the budget to the T to where we were able to we did like a Kickstarter in the beginning and we were able to just kind of keep going from that and stay sustained and then we have grants that come every now and again that kind of help us take things to a bigger step that really helped bolster us to be able to do the tour um, mm-hmm. but yeah so it's really um we've been really lucky that's something that I wish a lot more companies had was sustainability because so many people <laughs> just so want true. to grow without uh, taking the smaller steps needed in order the to get smaller there. Smaller steps. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it's it's really important. And like, and <laughs> it was also too, I was just also very aware that that was such a big thing I had to take account of because being in like, in like an environment in a theater school where you have a whole bunch of people doing the same thing, going out and starting theater companies. Um, mm-hmm. It was just, it was very interesting to be able to like learn from other people's mistakes. Cause I didn't start until my sophomore year. And by then I had seen like five or six theater companies get started and like two of them remaining by the end of that year. So mm-hmm. it was yeah. really like, I took the time to like ask them why did this stop or why didn't they keep going? And like to really learn from other people was really helpful as well. You're very smart. I really like the way you work. I <laughs> know. Oh, <thank you. laughs> it's like getting, yeah. I mean, we're getting close to like 45 minutes, but I think uh, you've covered all the topics I really wanted to talk about. Everything just flowed really nicely. We have one more question, unless you have anything else you want to say. Our last question is always Do you have any twin stories, which don't have to be theater related? We're just twins and we like listening to other people talk about twins because we think they're funny. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so do you have any twin stories? Interesting. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I always forget to warn people about that one. <laughs> I try I to remember. Well, it's funny because I, I know so many twins. I'm just like, I have to have. Do you really? Story. Yeah, I do. Well, I also, um, for a while, I work at a place, that, um, a kids facility. So there's just so many twins that come in and out of <laughs> that I have so many stories of like, um, of twins, of people trying to put a fasten on me too, because kids love to do that. <laughs> but, um, yeah, we, we're guilty. We've yeah, done it. I, got, I, think, I think the craziest would have been um, in middle school, I had these really close friends that were a set of twins and <laughs> one of them they both were, um, they were like, of course, they're identical. And so they would switch all the time to take each other's like exams and stuff. And it's <laughs> funny because like people joke about that all the time. So I didn't think it's something people could actually get away with, but they did it so often. <laughs> like, cause and did they always was, get away with it? Always. They never got caught. Cause one of them was like really academic and one of them was really good at like, like sports and like artsy things so like one would take all of their like because they also never had classes together because their mom wanted them in separate classes so they were like not like because I think they said they said their mom didn't want them to be together because then they would only socialize with each other or something like that. Which is very true. That's how we were. We did. Uh, So they were always separate. So they never had their class together. And so it would frustrate me to no end because I'd be like, I wish I could have someone do this for me. Like one guy would always, one of the twins would always run all the pacer tests in PE and would do both of those for all of them. And I know one would always take the English test. And it was just crazy. (laughs) I was just like, how? And it wasn't just like a one-time thing 
either. I think that's what also just like baffled me. It would just be like, oh, I really <laughs> need to. They just determined that, okay, I will take all of our English tests. And and the thing is too, they even had a system. The one who took the English test, he was like, which I, I'm going to take, to be fair, I'm going to take yours first. So that way my grade can be higher because then I'll have the, seen the test already. So I'll get the higher grades. <laughs> they had worked out a system and everything. So yeah. He would all, and then he never got caught. <laughs> I was just always like, if only I had this. So yeah, we always consider it kind of cheating. Did did anyone else in the class know that they were doing it? Because Stacy and I only did that once. We only switched once to take each other's, or I took two um, economy tests and she didn't take any. And everyone in the class knew that it was me taking the test and not Stacy, except for our teacher. Yeah. So did you did you notice that I, in your group? Like, did the kids know and the the teachers didn't? Oh yes, we all definitely knew because the twins they thought it was hysterical and they tell us all the time and like well, it is hysterical. No one... Oh yeah, it was hysterical, and so the teachers just never knew, and it was it was wild. <laughs> and we would just wait for the day for them to get caught, and they just never did. I also feel like I feel like the teachers might have had an inkling, but I feel like they would have felt ridiculous being like, "Are you you? Are you someone else?" That's probably like that's it. A weird question to ask. To be like, right? How do you call you? them out on it? Yeah, are you who you're supposed to be? Like, And, like, there's no way to prove it either. So. I was just going to say, it's not like you have IDs or whatever, you know, because, well, you could just switch IDs. So there's really no way. We mm. did get called out once on something that we didn't even cheat on. When was it, Stacey? It was in, it was in freshman high year, I think, in yeah. one of our classes. And we had to, like, interview different family members and write, like, our own autobiography. And our teacher called us out on it. And they're like, yeah, but you guys gave the same answers and stuff. And my mom was like, well, they're twins. They have the same grandparents. Same they interviewed the same people. Like, of course they're going to write about the same thing. And yeah. so after that, we it's never... It's not like our history was different. Never got in trouble for anything. But we only switched once. <laughs> our senior year in high school for one day. So Stacey wouldn't let me do it any more than that. But that's yeah. awesome. I wonder if it'll make you more aware now as an adult, if when you meet twins to figure out which one's which, because I feel like it's one of those magical powers that kids have. And then when they get older, they stop paying attention to details. So they have a harder time telling twins apart. Oh, no, I definitely have to do it. Because like I said, um, I spend a lot of time working at a children's facility as well. And there are a lot of twins here. So it's the first, it's literally the first thing I do once they introduce. And they're like, so this one's this one and this one's that one. I'm like, okay, you have <laughs> a mole right under your left eye. So right. you, like, I look for the small things I because I have to make sure I can tell them apart because they love, they get a kick out of me getting them confused. Especially like the five and six year olds, they won't tell me. I'll be like, oh, which one are you? Can you tell me your name, please? And they'll just not answer like, or they'll nope. switch. Nope, yep. I'm doing it. That's awesome. I mean, you have to have some fun, some fun when you're a twin. So, you know, That's I can't blame, can't blame them for that. <laughs> I know, I would if I could. I would if I could. <laughs> Well, that's awesome. Do you have anything else you want to say about your show opening or anything else to advertise before we before um, we turn it in? Well, again, Fancy Mains will be running from uh, the 9th this Friday to the 24th. Would love it if everyone could come out. And speaking of plugging other things, a lot of us on that project were also working on an upcoming film called Petty and Pink. So look out for that as well. Ooh, Wait, what's, what's the film wonderful. called? Yeah, and we're really excited about that, too. <laughs> it's um, on a completely different vein. It's a comedy, so it's not as um, dark as <laughs> fantasy. Not as... But... Is there a website or something as much? people well, can awesome. go to? Thank to... you so much for, for joining us on the podcast, Harold. It was really wonderful to talk to you. Of course. Thank you for having me. I loved it.
Thanks. I just realized okay. my mic's on mute and I kept trying to say things and I'm like, why are people talking over me? Uh, is there a, <laughs> yeah. Is there a website or something for the movie you're working on so people can learn about that if they want to go see that? Oh, sure thing. Um, we just started our social media campaign, so you can follow us on Petty and Pink Film on Instagram and Facebook. Petty and Pink Film. Nice. Excellent. And does Fancy Maids have Instagram and Facebook as well? Yes. Um, we're on the Rose Grew Here's Facebook and Instagram. So oh, okay. be at the Rose Grew Here. Wonderful. Well, Stacy does all that stuff, so she will tag everything, I'm sure. Yep. And it all comes out. I am taking Wonderful. notes the whole time and highlighting things I definitely want to tag and look up and <laughs> type through the whole interview. Excellent. Thank you so much, Harold. This, it was, oh man, I wish I could go out there and see the show. Okay, if you live stream or anything, let me know. I will. I will definitely let you know. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you so much, and hopefully we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thanks. Bye. 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 Thank you for listening to today's podcast. For more, visit our website at twinstocktheater.podbean.com and subscribe on iTunes or Google Play Music. You can also interact with us on Facebook or Instagram at Twinstock Theater. Title music, Dance Macop, is provided by Kevin McLeod of incomtech.com under Creative Commons License 3.0.